Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. That's Jen Schippel. And that is Steve Jones. And today on the podcast, we have a band that goes back, Jens, way, way back. Uh, to the- This band goes way back. They do. And uh, back to a time that, uh, you know, honestly, I don't even remember because I wasn't here. So, And uh, on top of that, I wasn't here either. I know. And that They have to go back if you weren't here, right, old man? Right. If, if, uh, if, if we have to go that far back, then we must be talking about the 60s. We, I think we are, yes. And uh, we're also <laughs> talking about a band called the Yardbirds. And uh, they, yeah, they've been, like you said, they they formed in the 60s. Um, I got a chance to talk to Jim McCarty, who was uh, their original drummer. Um, and uh, 1963 was when they uh, when they formed with their original lineup. And they've gone through a couple iterations of lineups uh, since then. I mean, they took decades off, but uh, reunited back around 2003. Um, and I'll tell you, I had a really good conversation with him. We'll, we'll get into it in a little bit. Uh, first, Jens, why don't you tell people how they can get a hold of us if they're uh, interested in reaching out? Well, uh, there are several ways to get a hold of us here at Concert Pipeline. Uh, the internet is the way to go. It's a good start. So <laughs> we do not, we do not accept <laughs> fan mail and in uh, hard letter form. This is true. We st- yeah we stopped accepting snail mail, so you're gonna have to go online and uh, you know uh, reach out to us that way. But we've got a uh, Facebook presence, so Concert Pipeline Pod is where you can find us on uh, the good old FB. Um, and then Concert Pipeline. You can find us under that tag. Um, so that would be Instagram. That would be, ooh, let me see. Uh, oh, YouTube. Uh-huh. Oof, Jens, you're getting, you're, it's, it's been 80 episodes that you've been on. It's just, <laughs> this is getting rusty here. What is happening? I'm getting rusty. I used to be sharp. Did I just say Skype? I meant Twitter. Sorry. Right. <laughs> Twitter. They're both blue, aren't they? See, I, sure. I do this color coded. Uh huh. Okay. I do. I do all my stuff color coded. Yeah. Yes. So definitely check out those places, um, and we'll post like um, you know photos and videos and stuff. And there's some good content on there. There you go. Uh, you, you said I, I don't even know what you said, but I think you you got Twitter, Instagram, uh, Periscope, and YouTube were were what you got to right i yeah i didn't get to the actual periscope one i yeah. substituted that with uh skype oh, okay <laughs> no uh yeah so if you happen to know what the contact is for concert pipeline on skype then give it a shot i don't know if you'll reach us <laughs> good <laughs> luck try yeah uh so Jens, you might be a little lightheaded uh because of some recent activities that you have uh the past couple of days why don't you tell us about what's been going on with your face yeah, let me tell you about my swollen face. My swollen face. Okay, so <clears throat> today and yesterday, I went to go see the dentist. Dual dentist appointments. Work. I like it. Dual dentist appointments. Back-to-back dentist appointments, totally. So back-to-back dental appointments, which is a pretty cool thing because um, 
you know, if you got to get something done, you might as well get it done as soon as possible and not have to, you know, wait days and days between appointments. So I had a, a crown that needed to be redone. It's an old one, I think. I don't know. I don't even remember getting it a long time ago. Right. And, um, and uh, for some reason, I had to get another one put in. So when you have that done, or if you have a root canal done or something, you usually always have to wait, you know, uh, days before the crown is ready so they can put it in your mouth. Um, so then you've got to, like, hang out with a temporary that's really uncomfortable and lame and and stuff. So I've got to say, my dentist is awesome. She is fantastic. As far as dentists go and, like, the quality of care and, you know, the um, – uh, you know, all the, um, the things that dentists, you know, have to kind of think about in terms of a patient's perspective, yeah. uh, to make, you know, them exceptional dentists and to make the experience as pain free. I don't want to say pain free, but as least painful as possible, Yeah, <laughs> you know, it goes a long way. I think she's the first dentist that I've ever had who was really that conscious about, what it might be like to be, you know, in the patient's chair. So they do all sorts of really cool stuff. You know, they put like, uh, like, lip, like lip balm or something on your lips so they don't crack because you have to keep your mouth open for two or three hours. <laughs> and um, they uh, do a great job with like numbing the whole area before they put the needle in. So when they, you know, when they numb you, uh, it's not crazy painful. Um, and then they're always kind of, you know, looking at what your symptoms might be in terms of how, you know, uncomfortable <laughs> you are during the procedure and they try to make you, you know, as comfortable as possible. So that's, that's super, 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 super cool. So that said, it was an agonizing experience. Yeah. That needle, I mean, just looking, going to the dentist and seeing that dental needle, yeah. those things are huge. Yeah, yeah. Why are they so big? I mean, I feel like I don't have any experience, you know, taking care of horses or anything, but I feel like if you have to give a horse a shot, it's going to be one of these massive needles like they have in Pulp Fiction. You remember that scene, like the adrenaline needle scene where they have to stab what's-her-face with that huge needle right into her heart just to get it, you know, beating again? I, I don't, but it, <laughs> but it's like they need an assistant just to help hold up the needle, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's like this massive needle that you would need for a large animal, right? You would uh -huh. think – but the needle doesn't have to be that big for a human. So I think this is this is my listen up, Steve. These I'm are my listening. thoughts on this. I think okay. it's like this conspiracy thing. Yeah. But not really a conspiracy, but it's a it's uh it's like preventative medicine. So when you're in that chair and you're in pain and you see that massive needle coming at you, damn it, you're gonna go home and floss and brush your teeth yeah. like ten times a day for the next freaking year because you don't want to see that damn needle again. <laughs> yeah yeah crazy anyway anyway yeah so there i was in the chair with my like mouth open for two and a half hours and they're you know working and then there was a student there it was really interesting um a student from a local high school who was doing some research on dentistry so he was taking notes and taking pictures and you know writing a report and he had to develop a poster so you're gonna so. be in you're gonna be in the local uh, high school newspaper with your, your, your mouth open uh -huh. Yes, I'm going to be famous in the area that I live in here. I'm going to be probably in the school paper. Maybe I'll be even like in the local journal. Who knows? I'll be like a picture with my mouth open and like, this is how a crown works. Uh -huh. <laughs> but what's cool is the tech that this uh, dentist has. So none of the other dentists I've ever had have had this much tech. Like she 
Well, the x-rays, for example, it's all x-ray digital photography or something. They just take a picture and boom, you know, it, it appears uh, right there on the screen. And then they can go ahead and make a, um, like they, they send the images over to their 3D printer or whatever it is. And the thing prints out your crown. They don't take it to a lab and have like a lab build it. They do it all in-house. And the, the printer thing that makes the actual crown mm-hmm. isn't bigger than maybe the size of a, a microwave would be too big, but like a toaster oven. So the thing just kind of creates it. And then when it's done, you know, they pop it in your mouth. It's, it's pretty cool. It's almost like drive through dentistry here, huh? Yes. It's almost like drive through dentistry, but you know what? I've been thinking a lot, especially during the appointment that I had today, Steve, Yeah. Um, where I wasn't in total pain. Like I was last time. Um, you watch Star Trek, right? Yes. And you've seen some Star Wars. Yes, I've seen them all, so except the present. You've seen them all. So like, the current yeah, so like Star Wars. In Star Wars, yeah, and this is probably true for like any you know science fiction show. It's just, these are the two big ones that I'm thinking of right now. But like in Star Wars, if somebody gets sick, there's like a medical droid that takes care of you, right? Right. Or in Star Trek, there's like the, the you, med bay. Or the you go to sick bay. Whatever it you is. go to sick bay, yeah. You go to sick bay, yeah. And then there's somebody in there with some gizmo that fixes you know, whatever's wrong with you. Yeah. They but just hold their, their often, little metal detector up to you. It, in your, your yeah. Office. yeah. It's like, it has yeah. cool blue lights or I don't remember, but it's, yeah. it's fancy and it's cool and there's no blood or surgery or anything. It just, it just fixes you. It just but works. How often, how often does somebody come in there needing like dental work? Like have you ever seen a, a dentist chop in, in science fiction? Like even in Star Trek, they had a, a psychotherapist, right? That's pretty yeah. progressive. But yeah. what about a freaking dentist? Doesn't anybody need dental care? I apparently not. Everybody's got good teeth, and you know, they they just take care of their teeth. These are the kinds of things that excite yeah. me about the future, Steve. Is, is it? Yes, I think there's going to be no need for dental care in the future. That's good. That's good. I mean, we're that means yes. we're moving in the right direction. Bad for people who are you know going to school for dentistry right now, but uh, true, you know, but that's true. But good for the human race that uh, you know this is right. this is something we don't have to worry about. In related news, right? Like uh, like. Twenty and twenty-four. When did Jack Bauer ever go to the bathroom? You see every hour of the day for twenty-four hours, right? But you never see right. you never see him pinching a loaf, right? That doesn't right. happen. He's right. just off saving the world, and you know he's doing his thing. He like he doesn't have a need to to do that. Yeah. So, so wait a minute. I've never seen twenty-four. Does that take place in the present? It, I mean, it uh, it does. Yes. Uh, it's twenty twenty-four in the future. No, it's just twenty-four. Oh, it's just 24. Um, you never watched 24 on, on Fox? No. Okay. Well, each it's a 24-season show. I mean, 24-episode season to each uh, uh, season. And, uh, and each hour is one episode. So the first hour might be like 12 to 1 o'clock p.m. And then the next hour is, you know, next week is 1 to 2. And then 2 to 3. And, then, you know, so every... Um, Every hour is accounted for over the course of a day, leading up to the uh, last hour when you know when Kiefer Sutherland fixes everything or wh- or whatever happens, right? You know, so uh, it's one very very long day, but never he doesn't go to the bathroom. He once. doesn't go to the bathroom at one at any point in that day, and you know, see, there's like that's like is it, what do they call that? Like a plot hole or no, not a plot hole, but like I don't know. Yeah. That's crazy. There must be an explanation somewhere. I mean, I know saving 
you know, saving the, the you know, the world from terrorists is a, a busy job, but everybody's got to go, you know, even if Man, you're like, there's, t- there's, only one, there's only one answer. He's a camel. He just, he camels it. He camels it, camels it, camels it. But even if you're like, you're on an important call, you're, you're calling back to headquarters or was it CTO or something? I figure we'll forget what it's called, but um, you're, even if you're on that call, you're, I mean, you could take that call on the on the in the loo, can't you? <laughs> I don't know. He's not a multitasker. Apparently, maybe. yeah. Apparently, so um, it'd be a very tiring day too. I mean, just like going that at that speed for twenty four hours, it's it's a lot to handle. So yeah, I think there must be drugs involved. Yes. So you there, met- there must be there must be adrenaline needles or something going on there. Yeah. And so you mentioned Star Wars, Jens. Uh, are you still of the mindset that uh, that Solo was uh, uh, two thumbs up? You haven't have you seen it again? Yeah, Solo was definitely two thumbs up. I um, uh, I guess that was the first Star Wars film that lost money for Disney. Um, but I'm hoping that people might soften up to it. Maybe um, you know when pay per view when it comes out on pay per view or DVD or Blu Ray or whatever. It's an acquired it'll taste. Be more is successful. It? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I thought it was great. You know, like I said before, it was a little bit slow for me in the beginning. It took me about 20 minutes or so before I, you know, kind of forgot where I was and was fully, you know, engrossed in the film. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe maybe I won't have that problem the second time I watch it. But I thought it was great. Do you have a need to get out and see it again very soon? Because usually you'll see it and then you'll see it again like a week later. For Star Wars, uh, I'd like to say yes, but you know what? I haven't even considered that, so I guess that's a no. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe we'll have to go uh, go see it, and I'll have to see it for the first time at some point. So yeah, I, I would say it's worth it. Uh, I, I mean, it's worth it has it. to be like a. Especially- yeah, especially if you have zero expectations. That's good. I mean, it has to be like a cheap night Tuesday or something like that that I go see it because I don't want to. I don't want to spend full cost on 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 that movie from what I hear. So, no, we'll get the cheapest tickets possible. There you go. We'll sneak in. Oh, there it is. There it is. So, um, yeah. So let's let's move on to the um, the bulk of our program here. And again, that is the Yardbirds. Um, I got a chance to uh, talk to uh, Jim McCarty on the the phone. Uh, talked about uh, uh, talked about their the reformation of the band. We talked about you know about his solo music a little bit. It was a it was a really good conversation, um, and and their upcoming shows, which he played at Yoshi's and at uh, Ace of Spades in Sacramento. Um, and, nice, um, fun. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be a little forthcoming here that you know went to the show uh, at Ace of Spades uh, after. Watching the Warriors destroy, by the way, uh, we went to a bar next door um, and watched the Warriors destroy in, uh, the, the Cavs in game two of, uh, of the finals. Wow. And uh, it was such a good game. I mean, but they tore them to pieces. And, uh, and so that was, that was a lot of fun. Then went over and watched uh, the Yardbirds at Ace of Spades, and I'll tell you, I'll just be honest, it was a different sort of show than I have seen at Ace of Spades. It was, it, honestly, um, you know, I was um, the youngest person there. I'm sure. Uh, okay. Uh, there from the '60s. Yes, yeah. So, and it was a seated concert at Ace of Spades, which I've never seen a seated concert there. Uh, so, Are you serious? 
Yeah. Am I serious? I've never seen oh a seated concert there, or, or am I serious? No, was, are you serious that it was a seated show? Yeah, I know, which I think was kind of a little off-putting. I mean, because when I go to, even though they're an older band, and I guess, you know, an older audience, I, I would assume everybody in I the audience. sit down. I would assume everybody in the audience yeah. had their AARP cards handy. Um, like, I... <laughs> I mean, it was still a rock show, and uh, and the band, you know, was. Uh, I mean, they they were they were upbeat, they were excited. I mean, it was a you know a fun show, really. So I was I was surprised I to walk in Ace of Spades and see you know seating there. It was just a little off-putting. Again, nothing against the band at all because, I, but it, I mean, the type of setup that they had for that show was it was general admission seating anyway. That's that's near here and near there. We're gonna get into some uh, some uh, yardbirds, um, and we're gonna start it out with uh, one of their songs from uh, from their set at Ace of Spades, and this is "Drinking Muddy Water." Here it is. Hi, this is Jim McCarthy of the Yardbirds, and you're listening to the Concert Pipeline.
Jim. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Sorry, I'm a bit late. Ah, uh, no worries, no worries. You got a uh, hold of me now, so we're good. So, <laughs> very, <laughs> okay. Very cool. Are you in? Just, oh, go ahead. Um, yeah, we're we're in uh, we're in Oakland. Yeah, I was about to say. When did you get into the bay? We we, we got in uh, just a couple of days ago. We played last night, and we came in the day before. And and how was the show last night? It was great. It was good. Very, very nice. Uh, very nice gig. Nice venue. Yeah. Did you get to do anything uh, fun when, uh, since you've been here for uh, a couple of days? Get to see any uh, the bay at all, or did you kind of uh, keep pretty oh, low we're, key? Yeah, we're, we're actually off tomorrow. So I'm um, sorry. I'm just walking down. I'm just walking down because they were cleaning up my room. Oh no. Um, yeah, we've got a day off tomorrow, so we'll see what we can do. Excellent. Uh, and. Um, and so tell me, I mean, while we're talking about the Bay, you know, when was the last time that you, you played a show here in the Bay? Uh, well, we, we played, um, I think last year we played here. Um, about, a, about a year ago. We, we played here twice before at Yoshi's. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played here, yeah, we played here last year and the year before that. So, uh just one, one one date each time. Yeah. We're playing basically two 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 nights, but we're playing two gigs tonight. Oh, nice. And and so, did you ever did you ever play in the the bay back in the in the sixties when uh, when the Yardbirds kind of were getting started? Oh yes, yes, yeah. We played we played the Pearl Moor, um, um, the Carousel. We must have played. Uh, I think we've played the Pearl Moor probably three, maybe two or three times. We played the Carousel Ballroom, um, and we played, you know, sort of local, local dates, not too, not too far away, up and down the coast. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the Fillmore. The Fillmore is my favorite place to to see a concert. There's so much energy there, and so I like I like talking to artists about the Fillmore a bit as as well. Can you tell me about that experience for you? What it was to play the Fillmore back uh, back in the '60s? I have no concept of you know <laughs> personally of. Uh, well, it, it, it was interesting uh, for me because um, I remember it was the first time I'd ever seen the light show. And I think I think I went uh, I went one night when we weren't playing, and I, I saw the um, Jefferson Aeroplane. Yeah, yeah, um, they played there a lot. Before they had before they had Crazy Slick, there was another singer I don't remember her name, but um, they had a light show going on. And of course, I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> I thought this is great. How did they do that? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just so amazing to just walk around the Fillmore and just get lost in all the posters and all the artists that have played there and just kind of feel that energy within the room, you know what I mean? Yes. Oh, yeah, it was great. And, uh, you know, Bill Graham was always, always quite a funny guy to, to deal with, you know, a bit of a strict sort of guy. Yeah. Um, and also I remember... Um, there was uh, Dr. Rousey, uh, what, Rousey Stanley is his name, his real name, and he was responsible for making all the LSD. And he came up and gave us a whole load of pills. We didn't know what they were. You did, uh, yeah. And, and so you took them, right? 
Yeah, yeah, we took him. It didn't do me any good. No, how was how was playing there uh, on LSD? Oh, oh God, I think I think it was something else. It was like a, a something a, a strange cocktail or something, and it was very odd. You know that the uh, it was very strange to play like that. You know, I c- I couldn't ever do that again. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, very, very odd indeed. Yeah, it's it's funny. I talked to one artist from who played back in the '60s at the Fillmore, and uh, and he told me about like playing outside and and being. Well, I mean, well, being outside and being handed like same sort of thing, like a pill of some sort, and uh, and uh, or maybe it was acid. I, I don't remember offhand, but he, taking that and then just being on stage and just like picking music notes up off the ground while he's playing, sort of thing. Being so trippy, like freaking ridiculous. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's very, very odd indeed. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really recommend it. I wasn't really that sort of person to take those sort of drugs. You know, I, I'm much too sensitive, really. Yeah. And people, could, some people I knew could just take them, and they, they would hardly change. But it, it made a difference to me. Yeah, yeah, and I bet it's different when you're on stage versus you know just relaxing and you know <laughs> and uh, yeah, taken as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, we had a lot of fun, and I always thought, you know, San Francisco was such a great, great city. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I want to, I want to ask you about, you know, starting back, you know, way at the beginning, even before kind of the Yardbirds. Tell me about like your, you know, what was it that got you into music, getting started? I know you were in the Boys Brigade, and you, that's kind of where you started playing drums. But did you have like kind of musical influences in your family? And then, well, I, I, I used to love early American rock and roll, you know, Blue Brothers and Buddy Holly and Elvis and Gun and Cash. And we had a little group at school, and I remember borrowing um, like 11 pounds or something. I saw a tiny little drum kit advertised in one of the local papers, newspapers, and it would cost 11 pounds. It was just a a snare drum and a bass drum and a hi-hat, that's all it was. And uh, I used to play on that in, in the school group. And Paul Samuel Smith played, too, the bass player in the Yardbird. Mm-hmm. He, he played, because he, he was at the same school, and he played uh, he played lead guitar at the time. It was before he ever started bass. And we used to play all those old all those old rock and roll songs in the... In the the school dances. Yeah. Uh, we come on in the interval, you know, uh, between the interval, uh, between the dance, when the dance band had stopped uh, and everyone used to go mad, you know. Um, and we also play, used to play at, at a local pub near the school um, on, on a Saturday night and that was, that was fun. Um, that was sort of built up. Um, and, we, you know, we were quite a good group. And funny enough, I, I put all these stories into um, a, a book I've just finished called Nobody Told Me, uh, uh, a, a book that just came out, um, which is, which is uh, you know, been quite popular. Oh, it just came out. I'll have to check that out. That sounds sounds pretty cool. How, yeah. Tell, what was the process of writing uh, for you? Is that is that the first book you've you've written? And uh, tell me about that. Yeah, process. I, 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 uh, somebody, funny enough, someone in in, in Oakland uh, came to me with the idea, 
uh, first of all, it was about three years ago, and they approached me through like social media. Said, "Did you want to uh, write a book? I've, I've done, I've done some other books, and um, so I started writing. And uh, I thought, well, this would be fun. I could write about all these things I talked to, talk about in interviews and things. Um, and uh, um, it, it went from there, but it, it, they didn't really have the sort of uh, style, the writing style that I wanted, and uh, I eventually." ended up with an English guy, Dave Thompson, mm -hmm. uh, an English guy who lives in Delaware, and he's done a lot of rock, rock books before. He's done a book on Get Back, I think, and some Deep Purple book and uh, other stuff. And uh, he turned out to be very good to work with because being English, he'd been through a lot of the same things as me in that scene. And in London, he knew a lot of the same places. And... Uh, we had a bit of a laugh, and I managed to get out a lot of um, a lot of funny stories. Yeah. So, so tell me about the you know how you kind of came to those stories. Do you do you remember like a, a lot of those times still pretty vividly? Because we're talking like over fifty years ago for you know obviously the crew. Well, I can, yeah, I, I can remember a lot because I'm used to to talking. You know, I'm used to doing interviews. Yeah. Um, because you know most people want to talk to me because uh, I'm the, the original, and um, so I, I, I'm used to remembering a lot of stories, and I, my memory is quite good. And uh, it, 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 it's fun, you know. Um, and, and it was a, a laugh getting some, you know, some of the funniest stories. Um, there was one story where we played with the Beatles um, in Paris. And we were using the same um, back line gear, and I was playing Ringo's uh, drum kit. And uh, I was used to playing very hard, you know, because they didn't used to mic up the kit like they do now. Yeah. And uh, I, I played very hard in order to get heard. And uh, I looked down, you know, towards the end, I looked down at the snare drum, and I'd, I'd broken it. I the smash Ringo's snare oh, drum. Oh, no. felt terrible. <laughs> I felt terrible, and, and uh, I was, you know, when I when I got up, I, I felt awful. And um, but the, 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 the roadies were great, you know. They said, "Oh, don't worry, we we change that skin." And uh, Ringo had a bit of a laugh. He waved his fist at me and stuff, just for a joke. Yeah, but that was a funny story. That's awesome. Do you remember the the first time you heard your music on the radio? The first time I heard uh, our own stuff. Yeah. Oh, that was great. Yeah, yeah. When we first heard our own stuff on the radio, um, yeah, that that was great. Uh, even before Four Your Love, you know, we had singles out. Um, I, I think we had Wish You Would and Good Morning, It Was Cool Going. Uh, we, uh, we didn't get a huge amount of play for those songs, but, uh, you know, it was always very exciting and, when we first on the television, you know, I remember my mum went crazy and she told me the neighbours we were going to be on and she was very proud, you know. Yeah. <laughs> very funny. Yeah, so your parents were really supportive of you, you know, going towards a, a future in music. Oh, yeah. I, well, I, I, I didn't really know. And when I first gave my job up, you know, my mother didn't quite understand it. And it was very, uh, it was a difficult decision because I was, 
I was working in the city of London. I was working in a stockbroker's and starting uh, starting to be an actuary. And, uh, uh, you know, that was difficult for me because it was just me and my mother and um, she didn't quite understand. But as soon as the group got going and we sold it on radio and TV, it became a different story. Yeah, yeah. So, so you mentioned you uh, went to school with Paul. Tell me how you kind of uh, met up and brought in uh, Chris and Keith and Top. Can you say that again? Sorry, I didn't hear. Yeah. So you said you went to to school with Paul, right? So that's kind of how you uh, met, got you know how he joined the the band with you. Tell me about how the the rest of the band kind of came in and um, and formed you know the Yardbirds ultimately. Oh well, yeah. Well, that was a bit later after we'd left school. I, I bumped into Paul one day and uh, in a local pub and we hadn't seen each other for a while and um, we had a drink and he said, oh, you know, you've got to come back and, uh, to my house and listen to this record. It's, uh, it's uh, by a guy called Jimmy Reed and it was Jimmy Reed at the Carnegie Hall. And um, it, it was like, you know, a real, what we call R&B in those days. It was uh, like a blues record. Um and I was really taken with it. I thought it was great, you know, that's a great uh, sound and a great feel of music. And uh, I was very excited to uh, buy it. And then, um, I, I, you know, I heard more music um, of that similar thing, you know, like Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters and all that sort of music suddenly appeared, you know, we suddenly were able to find those records and they, it was quite rare at the time. And uh, We also used to go and see the Rolling Stones and uh, we all used to hang out in a in a, a, a pub in Kingston in Surrey, which is in the southwest of London. Yeah. And um, all the art school students used to go there and uh, Keith Welch and um, Chris Dreyer and Top Top and they, they were all art school students. Uh, Keith, uh, Paul and I were at uh, high school, grammar school. Uh, and then we, you know, make a long story short, we all, we all got together and, and started to play shows. And uh, I think our first show, we were supporting Cyril Davis of the Pie Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Davis was a great blues harmonica player, um, and he had a he had a gig um, that he couldn't do, and he, he offered it to us uh, out in Harrow, which is just in the also in the southwest of London. And uh, so we went from there, and then uh, finally we managed to get the gig at uh, the Crawdaddy Club in Richmond, where the, the Stones used to play every week. The stones got so big, they, they moved on, and um, they were, were looking for another band, and we contacted Giorgio Gronowski, the, the promoter of the club, and um, he signed us up and eventually became our manager, and then that was our big break, and uh, it sort of all expanded from there very quickly. Yeah, and so uh, so you mentioned before that you um, you you would play like Buddy, Buddy Holly songs and Elvis songs in school. Um, did you ever get to ch- a chance to see them live? And and if so, like how is, how did that kind of influence you? Uh, did we ever see them live? 
no, no, not really. Um, only on the TV. You know, we never. Uh, I don't think I ever saw those people live. Uh, uh, I remember seeing the Shadows play live uh, and Joe Brown, but I'm, no, I never saw any of the American American people live. Not until the the um, the blues, the blues men came over. They used to do a blues tour in England um, um, every year. You know, they'd bring about half a dozen uh, blues people over, you know, like Muddy Waters, like Howling Wolf and Big Joe Turner. You know, they used to come over and do a, do a, do a little tour of, of uh, halls in, in England. And I, uh, you know, well, we all used to go and see them. And uh, Sonny Boy Williamson was part of that tour too. He he, he was on one of them. And um, Giorgio brought him down to see us play one night. And he decided he'd like to stay over in England and do some gigs. And so, you know, we became his backing band. Yeah, and so... Um... Tell me, tell me about when uh, Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck were in the band, and um, and the dynamic of of that band. How you know how what they brought to uh, the Yardbirds during their their time in the band. Uh, well, uh, the yeah, Eric Clapton joined after Topham because Topham Top Topham was the original, and he he was too young, and uh, his parents wanted him to 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 stay studying, studying his art. A, a sort of art career or whatever. Uh, and then Eric Clapton came through the art school circuit. He knew um, he knew the guys from art school, Kingston Art School. And then when we did For Your Love, he, he didn't like that. It was too poppy for him. He wanted to play a blues song, you know, for, to do as a single. And we wanted to get Jimmy Page in the band, and Jimmy was busy doing all the the uh, record sessions in London. And uh, so he he recommended Jeff back, and Jeff uh, Jeff joined, uh, you know, in replaced Eric. He was great, and Jeff had a lot of different sounds at his fingertips, and he, you know, he created really responsible for creating that. Uh, in a way, our sound because it was, he contributed uh, the sounds, uh, all those you know weird and wonderful fuzz, fuzz box and uh, feedback and all that stuff. And um, then it was later when Paul Samuel Smith left that um, um, Jimmy Page came in first of all to play the bass. Wow. And then eventually Jimmy swapped with Chris Dreyer. Chris went on to bass, and yeah, Chris, Jeff and Jimmy both played lead guitar. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome. And and so you've you've said that um, you think uh, Roger the Engineer uh, was your uh, was your favorite album. Tell me what about that album kind of was special for you? Well, that was yeah, that was uh, that was my favorite one. I think that was the best lineup with Jeff Beck and Paul Summersmith, You know, Keith and Chris and myself. Um, we did that album very quickly. Um, we started off with, with a couple of the songs we used to play, you know, fairly live. Uh, and then we sort of made up a lot of the songs as we went, just just for fun. Um, 
And we did, of course, uh, over on the side, waist down, we, we sort of based that on an old sort of boogie rock and roll duffel sort of thing. Uh, Jeff created that, uh, you know, very interesting riff to start it. And, uh, um, and we were, you know, probably at the most just a couple of weeks doing the whole album in, in the studio, which was, and it was the first time we'd, we'd actually done an album per se, rather than, you know, just made an album of, uh, of the singles. Yeah. And that, you know, that was, that was great fun. Very cool, very cool. And so I want to I want to know what it was like for you, what the experience was like to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Tell me about, you know, just I mean that feeling and uh, and even the evening of uh, you know of be, uh, of the induction. Well, it was great. It was great because uh, I think we 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 did get um, forward before a couple of years so we, we you know we didn't we didn't make that one and then five, when you, when we made it I think we realized you know how highly we were thought of because we were always said to be that unbated as a group and as soon as we were we that happened to us we felt you know we'd been really truly honored and felt very good about it and uh, of course to be there in the evening of the, you know such a a lot of great people, you know, um, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix's experience, uh, although they weren't, you know, Jimi wasn't there, obviously, but um, he, he was inducted and Johnny Cash was inducted with, you know, a great honour because we used to play his songs. And uh, Booker T and the MG and Sam and Dave and, you know, there were a lot of people getting up making speeches like Little Richard and Keith Richard and uh, uh, and getting inducted by by the edge, you know. Um yeah, it was it was a great it was a great honor. Awesome. And and so tell me what was it that what made you want to reunite the, the Yardbirds back in two thousand three or, or I guess it maybe even before two thousand three when you kind of brought the Yardbirds back again? Well, we played. Uh, I got I got back into a sort of a blues band. Via Top Topham, uh, he came back into my life, and uh, there was like a new, a, like a new blues scene going on in London about about 1990 or the late 1980s. And um, there was a pub in Shepherd's Bush um, called the Station Tavern, and. Uh, the, the, the uh, publican there, the, the guy that ran the pub, was a, a real blues fan, and he wanted to have blues music every night of the week. So um, he, he uh, you know, we, we started to go there. We we, well, we made up a group, and uh, and we started playing every Wednesday night, and it sort of built up and up. And we, uh, I met a, a young. American guy called John Iden, who was uh, over from America, who, who actually met he met Top first of all, and um, he, he seemed like a you know he had the right image and uh, he liked the blues and he was part of the group and uh, he the venue really built up every Wednesday was really more and more people and. Uh, we sort of went from there. Chris Treyer came down, um, Jeff Beck and Paul Thomas Mezzo, they all came to see, you know. Um, and then eventually uh, Chris and I were, were called up by uh, an agent in, in Lancashire 
who wanted to um, book us out. He, he was booking a version of the animals, and uh, he suggested the Yardbirds got back together. So uh, Chris and I put a band together with uh, the same John Iden and uh, guitar player and harmonica player, and we went from there. And uh, you know, we ended up doing that uh, Birdland album in 2003 on the Steve label, and uh, we kept going and having changes of changes of uh, lineup, and uh, eventually ended up today with a totally you know totally American lineup. And and so, how did it feel for you to to go back and revisit those old songs that you know from before? Like, what, uh, tell me about that. Did you ever think you'd, you'd play them again in that capacity? What the old for your love and all these things? Yeah, just I mean, just the old you know Yardbird songs from from before when you know after you reunited the band. Uh, well, I mean, they they still sound good. Um, I don't know what it is that they we still we still play them so and they still seem to sound uh, you know I suppose they were so unusual so original um, something about them still still sounds up to date and um, uh, you know that it's a great repertoire and that's in a way it's a repertoire that keeps me going. Yeah. Um, okay, so I have a couple more questions here. I want to ask you about um, your new solo album, um, Walking in the Wildlands. First of all, I, th- I, th- I want to say I think it's a, a beautiful album. I really like the the piano in Mountain Song. It's uh, it, it's really got a great feel. Thank and, you. Yeah. yeah. And, um, well, I, I recorded that in Toronto. Um, I started uh, sort of working in Toronto through uh, two years ago to a, a flute player I knew called Ron Cord, who, who had a little record label um, that I, I was doing a couple of things for, uh, you know, a sort of a quiet, new-agey sort of label. Um, we decided to do an album in Toronto with some of the musicians he knew, and we did one called Sitting on the Top of Time, um, and then I started to like Toronto as a place, and, and you know I use it as the hopping off point to get to America for the U.S. tours. And uh, um, uh, I, I decided to do another album, which was that one, Walking in the Wildland, which started about you know three years ago, about 2014 to 2015 or so. Um, and using a, a, a bass player called George Kohler that played on the original album, first album, um, and a keyboard player called Tom Reynolds, and we, we basically did all the tracks, and then, and then we, um, you know, we added added to the tracks and added musicians here and there, and I ended up with a, um, a producer called Terry Brown who actually mixed all the all the tracks. Um, and Terry was an English producer living in Toronto, and he'd, uh, he worked a lot with Rush before and a lot of Canadian groups, and he's a great guy, and I, I think he did a great job, you know, getting a nice vocal sound and making the, making the stuff, you know, sound really nice, and uh, I'm very pleased with it. 
Yeah, and and so how do you? What's your approach, kind of, when you're writing for uh, your solo material versus writing for the Yardbirds? Well, I think it's easier in a way um, um, for my solo, as you know, songs that I, that I found good singing, um, not necessarily bluesy songs. Um, and it's out of that renaissance, renaissance um, thing, you know, much more of a singer-songwriter uh, feeling, you know, and it's based around the, the keyboard sound, um, much more lyrical, much more melodic. Um, it's more difficult to write a Yardbird song because it has to live up to that Yardbird's repertoire, which is, you know, strong, quite, quite... Uh, Heavy bluesy stuff, uh, which is is more difficult to do. Um, but I, I find I find it easy to write to myself, and it's nice to say you know say something that's uh, a bit a bit deep and a bit, bit more alternative, and uh, you know get, with a nice message. And and I'd heard that uh, there was that you were going to be working on a uh, a yard new Yardbirds album at the end of 2017. Is that are you still working on that? Well, we were doing, but we we found we yeah it was difficult. We didn't really have enough material. Um, we, we had some material, and uh, I don't know. It just didn't feel right, and uh, decided not to go ahead with it for the time being. I mean, it's all it's always the idea is always there. It is possible, you know. Um, if we, if we had a few an input of some nice songs and it all it all clicked together and it was the right time, it would happen. It just wasn't right somehow that time. Yeah, it was good to make that decision, you know, rather than put out material you're not proud of and that you feel doesn't. Well, yeah, it has right. to it has to be very strong. You know, we have to have some, you know, at least half a dozen great great songs really, and you know, we we had a. Two or three good songs. It wasn't wasn't enough. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you guys are going to be playing the Flower Power Cruise, um, uh, and so tell me a little bit about how that uh, came about. It seems like a pretty cool lineup. Well, yeah, we we did it last year, and uh, it was fun. Uh, I'd never I'd never done a cruise before. Um, it's not like you're you're on for a long time. I think we were only on for like three days. Uh, there were some good bands on the, the Vanilla Fudge we were on last year, and Eric Burden, and uh, uh, a couple of other bands that were good. Uh, and this year, yeah, this is quite a good lineup, and um, it seemed so well done last year. It was so well organised. It seemed good to do again. Um, um, you know, it's a good, it's a good boat, and a, a good audience. They, they love it, and uh, we did very well on that. Awesome, awesome. Well, Jim, thank you for taking the time today. I'm uh, I'm going to be at the uh, show in Sacramento on Sunday, so I'm looking forward to seeing you guys live. Okay, Steve. That was the interview with the Yardbirds here on Concert Pipeline. Jens, what time is it on the podcast? It is time for music news, my friend. That is right. So yes, it is music news time, uh, and that means we have some uh, interesting yeah. stories to 
to talk about with you. So, um, the first is actually a very local story ends. Okay. Uh, we're going real local here. Are you ready? Is this more bottle rock stuff? This is a bottle rock story. How'd you know? Local. Yep. Local. Bottle rocks. Be local. About as local as it can get. So, um, so there was a world record that was broken at Bottle Rock, Jens. Are you ready to hear about this? It's going to blow your mind. My mind is already blown. Okay. So we got a world record at uh, that was made at Bottle Rock, Jens, and this one's going to blow your mind a little bit. Um, this involves one serious stoner, Mr. Snoop Dogg. And oh, right. Snoop Dogg, yeah, let's hear it. He was in town for, uh, for Bottle Rock and uh, spent his Memorial Day breaking records, specifically in the category of gin and juice. Now, uh, Jens, are you familiar with uh, Snoop Dogg's big hit gin and juice? I uh, no, not at all. Uh, I uh, <laughs> hit me. What would I? What would I uh, expect? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so here's here's a little bit of gin and juice. Let's we'll skip ahead. Hold on. That's a uh, that's some gin and juice for you, Jens. Um, I'm loving it. Yeah. Um, and so during Bottle Rock, uh, Snoop, along with Warren G and Top Chef season six winner Michael uh, Voltaggio, set the Guinness World Record for the world's largest gin and juice cocktail. How how big is the world's okay. largest? How big is the world's largest gin and juice? You might ask, Jens. I was just good, but, you know, I'm contemplating here. Um, I would love to tell you, but I, I've gotten no clue. It contained 132 gallons of liquid, which is uh, 180 bottles of gin, 154 bottles of apricot brandy, and 38 jugs of orange juice. And That's insanity. And the final one drink this. Yeah, yeah. The final product was topped off with a massive paper umbrella and straw, which Snoop used to mix the cocktail. And uh, a whole watermelon and pineapple were used as a garnish for the massive drink and were added to the final cocktail on the sword. So, yeah. And this is just for one person? Uh, I, I, I mean, I don't know who was responsible for drinking it, but I, <laughs> but I see a picture of this thing. The, the watermelon is like the olive. It looks like the olive on the straw. It's, uh, it's, oh, my God, how funny. It's pretty awesome. Uh, and uh, Guinness uh, World Records tweeted that there's a new record, record created there um, at Bottle Rock, and um, so uh, yeah, it was his. That was that was a single from back in 1993, by the way. So 1993. Yes, that's that's hilarious. I um, they must have done that, you know, for the sole purpose not just to have fun, I guess, with it, but to deliberately break that record. I mean, I I would say that was probably the intent. Yes. Uh, and <laughs> it wasn't just an accident. <laughs> no, I, I mean that. So that happened on the culinary stage, and uh, 
the culinary stage is, re- I mean, really pretty cool. I didn't get to go to Bottle Rock this year, but I mean, there you go uh, for the music. Obviously, you see bands that you like. There's a lot of good food, also food and uh, wine and stuff. But there's this culinary stage where they pair like musicians and uh, and famous chefs together. Sometimes celebrities uh, as well. Uh, like Tiffany Amber Thiessen uh, was there, uh, a bunch of other. Uh, Isn't it Monty Stewart there last year? Monty Stewart? <laughs> Martha. Martha Martha Stewart, yes, Monty's cousin. Uh, yes, Martha Stewart was there actually with Snoop Dogg uh, that, uh, last year. I, I, I saw them on the culinary stage, and it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, so this isn't just a cooking stage. I mean, because they take it to new levels. Like Sean White was there this year. Some a bunch of uh, pro athletes were, were there. Last year, uh, Steph uh, Curry from the Warriors uh, ended up going with his his wife was signed up, but he he was a surprise guest. He showed up as well, so it's really cool. And they get they make food, they throw stuff in, you know, some they share food in the crowd, uh, send out throw out a lot of swag, and uh, get really engaged with the audience. It's a it's a heck of a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, it sounds like a blast. Yeah, so uh, so that happened in Napa this past weekend. So pretty cool. Well, awesome. Yeah, that's definitely a around-the-corner story from you. Yes, yes. So what do you got, Jens? Um, you got a story for us? I got a story for us. Uh, yeah, a story for your, you two. You're a Tenacious D fan, right? You know I am, Jens. You are a fan of the Mr. Jack Black. I am, and, uh, and Kyle Gass as well, uh, making the D the greatest yeah. band in the world. Excellent. Yes, of course, Kyle Glass. These two are performing in cities. Such as, drum roll please. Vancouver. Whoa. Portland. No way. Whoa, Seattle. Holy heck. Yay! Okay. Is there another? Is there California? Yeah. Yes, but I am here to tell you that there are new dates coming for their tour. Uh, is there anything anything local, Jens? Uh, okay, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. Now, don't get too excited. Uh, there are local tours. Yes, uh, San Bernardino. Oh my goodness, down yeah, south. That's not, that's not local, but that's no. in California. Okay. Uh, Oakland. Oh my God, Fox Theater. Yeah. Fox Theater in Oakland, California. That's going to be December 17th. Marking it on my calendar. December 17th. Oh my God. I know. A concert. I actually might be in Seattle when they are playing in Seattle on December the 14th. Oh, yeah? You already got plans lined up to, to be there, huh? You're going to get your tickets? Yeah. Well, it's my dad's 80th birthday on the 15th ah, of December. Okay. Now, now he's not a Tenacious D fan. He's uh, not. Only You're... because he's never heard of them before. Maybe but... if I turn him on uh, to the band, then he'll I can buy tickets and we can go for his 80th birthday. Oh, that would be a father-son trip for sure, yes. Uh, <laughs> you definitely never forget it. Oh, one for the one for the books. You should absolutely. It's his 80th. Yes, he needs to go to Tenacious D, and you need to. Right, that's something, something you got to do on a well-rounded birthday like that. If you take your dad to Tenacious D in December and uh, and record a podcast with him, 
Oh my I god, you, you'll be my hero. That'll be episode 200. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jens and his dad. Oh my god, yeah. Anyway, good good stuff. So, a um, little bit more detail about this. Um, I mean, so that, these are, this is an extension of an existing tour that's been going on for five years. Right. So, wait, first, first U.S. tour in five years. Okay. So, um... Uh, there's a new studio album coming out as well, um, and uh, the duo says it'll probably, quote, unquote, be released in 2018. So I would say look for that early 2019. Yeah, probably not in time for... Uh for the shows, I guess. Well, I mean, if, if shows, it's, yeah. I mean, the show is like at the end of 2018. So if it's going to be released, it should be, I mean, that would be cool if the album was released before the show and then, uh, you could get into some of the new tracks that they, they got. Hopefully it's good. A good album. I mean, the last one wasn't their best work. I mean, their first album was brilliant, quotable to, I mean, it was, it was great, but, um, but well, maybe the, the the third one is kind of a, a comeback after number two. Hope. But maybe maybe they'll release a couple of songs, you know, um, before the whole album. Yeah. Um. So people will be familiar with the content uh, in case they have. Yeah. Play some of that stuff. They've actually had three albums out because one was they've they, uh, they had their original album self-titled. Uh, then the second album was uh, tied to their Pick of Destiny movie. And uh, and then the third album, Rise of the Phoenix, which they actually played the Fox Theater uh, in Oakland on that tour, and uh, and I got to see them then as well. So, um, so I've seen I've seen them a couple times. Actually, I've seen them th- I think three times as Tenacious D, and I've seen ja- uh, I've seen Kyle Gass a handful of times in his solo projects as well. So, oh, um, cool. It, yeah. Um, um, well. Yeah. No, that should be something exciting to look forward to. Exciting times. All right. Um, my next story, Jens, is uh, uh, just another breach of millions of customers' data. You know, that's all. Uh, this one's from Ticketfly. Uh, they did, uh, 26 million customers' data is uh, exposed. Names, email addresses, phone numbers, and home addresses in this cyber incident. So, um, Oh, my God. Yeah, Ticketfly was forced to take its services offline for several days after being hacked uh, uh, this past week. Um, in what a company spokesperson referred to as a cyber incident. Ticketfly resumed its normal operations on June 2nd. Uh, in a statement, the company acknowledged that some customer information has been compromised as part of the incident, in- including that information I said. Uh, and Engadget reports that the Ticketfly hacker has leaked over 26 million email addresses to a public server. Uh, it's been confirmed to Pitchfork um, by a web security expert um, and many... Uh, ticket cus- ticket fly customers information also made public as part of, part of the leak credit cards and passwords were not part of the compromised data but the hacker is threatened to post more data uh, presumably if their ransom demands are not met um, that's insane man I know yeah that's, that's crazy on so many different levels you know I mean it's crazy to, to think what an impact that might have you know if, uh, if your information is um, abused and I mean like just the fact that there's an organization out here doing this and then wanting some kind of you know uh, 
monetary compensation. Here they go. They they hack in. They steal all this stuff, and then on top of that, they you know want money to you know not hack more of it or release more of what they have. Yeah, yeah, it's a, not a good situation to. How do they get away with it? That's what I always wonder. How do they get away with it? Isn't all of this stuff traceable through IP addresses or, you know, however? Or the pros um, trace the stuff? I mean... I mean, you'd think so, right? But, I mean, somehow they're able to make a threat but not be identified during the threat. This is like stuff from a movie, right? Like, that's... This is... is, Yeah, for me, this is so science fiction. It's like, isn't there... I mean, I'm just going to give kind of a ludicrous example, but isn't there, like... Can't the police show up at the bank where the where the robbers go to rob the bank? Like, okay, here's the bank. This is the IP address, and they have to come in here to get their money. So we're just going to wait for them. <laughs> I mean, it's not that simplistic, but somehow there must be kind of a heads up. I would say, but I don't know, maybe not. Yeah, I know. I don't know. It, all that stuff's way over my head, but I I don't know. It sucks that that sh- that that happens. You know, it's just. Yeah, it's horrible. It sucks. It totally sucks. You know what? I've been a victim of of smishing recently. You have. I didn't even know smishing was a thing. I didn't. I didn't it never happened to me. No one ever told me about it before. And all of a sudden, I just started getting all this spam via text message. I'm like, what the hell is all this shit? Yeah. And then I learned all about smishing, and uh, and you know, then I'm wondering, ah, huh, I wonder if you know my data was in was in the last. If my data was compromised last time, um, you know, some reputable company was hacked that I had information in, you know, whether it was like a bank or whatever. Yeah. And all these people are smishing me because they have my phone number. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. Well, that sucks. Yeah, it's it's not any fun. I mean, and to have to dig out of some of those situations, like if your social security number gets taken and stuff, I mean, that's all sorts of bad, right? I mean, all the work that's involved. Not the worst. To, yeah, yeah. I know people complain about, oh, my credit card number was compromised. Now I have to cancel my credit card and I have to wait for a new card. It wasn't inconvenient. And then I have to contact 20 different organizations because I have auto pay and all this stuff, or it's just, you know, linked to my Amazon and now I need to put in a different card. It's like, okay, that's an inconvenience. But if you get your social security number stolen and someone literally takes over your identity, then holy shit, that is a whole new level of hell. Yeah. Not, not fun at all. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, you want to also know what's not fun? I do. Please tell me what's not fun. Well, let's talk about Ariana Grande. Okay. Um, so not so long ago, there was this horrible terrorist attack uh, that happened outside of her concert in Manchester um, last year. Remember that one? Yeah, that was that was all sorts of bad. That was horrible. Yeah, so this poor thing. I mean, she had a, she had a show there, and if I remember correctly, it happened at the very end of the show. I think when people were leaving, and um, then there was the attack, um, and then she had a like a benefit concert or something after that. Yeah. Um, but there's news coming out now that she, um, the poor thing, has been traumatized by this, so she has PTSD symptoms. Uh, uh, because of that whole, uh, 
of that whole event. So she's really been uh, grappling uh, hard with PTSD. And um, in an interview, she said, it's hard to talk about it uh, because so many people have suffered such severe, tremendous loss. But yeah, you know, it's a real thing. I know those families and my fans and everyone there experienced a tremendous amount, you know, of it as well. Um, and it's one of those things. It's, it's, I can, I mean, I've never been in a situation like this, but yeah. it's got to be one of those things where it's really, really tough because, you know, when you have people that have been seriously injured or killed, you know, and, and you and you weren't yeah. physically injured or killed. Your problems seem well, like a lot everybody less. Everybody went to your show, yeah. so you might feel like you're kind of responsible for it. And then you start having these awful PTSD symptoms, which, you know, severely fuck up your life. Um, but then it's like, okay, but I should be grateful because, you know, I wasn't physically injured or I'm not dead. It's kind of like, I mean, I don't know if I'm just making stuff up, but I, I can imagine that certain people might have this... Um, you know, real dilemma. I kind of like survivor's guilt, I guess is what I'm referring to. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just yeah. kind of my, my two cents. It doesn't say anything about survivor's guilt here in this uh, article. But, um, no, no. Says, I mean, I, I feel like I shouldn't even be talking about my own experience. Uh, like I shouldn't even say anything. I don't think we'll ever know how to talk about it or, you know, not cry. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it sounds like, I mean, I w it would be more of a news story to me if she didn't have PTSD over it, right? I mean, that's... Right, that's true, yeah. You would, you would expect it, that it would be 100% normal that, you know, most people suffered some sort of post-traumatic you know, stress. Um, so, yeah, man, I feel bad for her. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of hers, but she's definitely talented. Um yeah, she said she's always had an issue with anxiety. Uh, she's never really spoken about it uh, because she just thought, you know, everyone was anxious. Um, but when she got home from the tour, uh, it was the most severe that, uh, you know, it's ever been before. So it's getting, after the tour just got worse. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, hopefully she's able to get the help she she needs to get better and uh, and move forward from... Uh from that situation, you know, but yeah, yeah, she did. That's tough, especially in her situation, because I, the best thing for her to do is to not stop what she's doing. You know, just get back on stage, continue performing and just work through your symptoms as you're up there, you know, giving your fans a good show. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, tough, man. Well, Jens, I want to end on a, a more positive note. Cause that's, you know, kind of a bummer, but, uh, fans are. Yeah, well, I feel I, I feel depressed after this article, man. I think I might have to go lie down. Yeah, well, you know, uh, the, we, we can lift you up a little bit with with some prints, right? Yes. Yeah, oh man, did he come back from the dead? Yeah, yeah, some exactly. Good news about Prince. He he realized how much he was missed, and uh, and so yeah, he came back uh, came back from the dead to play some some shows. So. Uh, Woo fantastic! Wait on me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, got, so you gotta, gotta get some prints going to get, get the beat going, you know, the, the tone going a little bit, right? Yeah. So, I'm getting the rhythm. Yeah. Little, little, little red, little red Corvette, huh? Okay. So, so, a um, group of Prince fans are uh, going to be celebrating uh, the late icon's 60th birthday with a three-day gathering in Henderson, Minnesota. 
uh, near where scenes from Purple Rain were filmed. So, yeah, I guess uh, uh, Joel King, who served as a camera operator on Prince's Graffiti Bridge and several music videos, is co-organizing the event. It's going to feature bus tours of Purple Rain locations, a screening of the 1984 film, and performances by local musicians. The uh, Mankato Free Pr uh, Press reported that. Um, and uh, the, the town has a population of under 1,000 people. Um, the town of Henderson. It's already the home of uh, uh, a street dubbed Purple Rain Road and a stone bench that's dedicated to Prince who re uh, resided at Paisley Park in uh, Chanhassen, Minnesota, outside the Twin Cities. So, um, All right, where is this? That is in Minnesota. It's in Henderson, Minnesota. In Minnesota. So, yeah, it's, okay. All right. it's happening June 7th. So get to your, t you know, you can hop on a plane, get over there real quick. Free gathering. Um, that and that would have been Prince's 60th birthday. Ironically, my daughter's eighth birthday is uh, same day. Oh, Just look same. at that! Trying so. success in two days. Yeah. Okay. How about you pick me up on the way to the airport and we'll go? And I'll just have to. I'll just miss my daughter's birthday. That sounds like a great idea. I like the you way you bring think. her with. Bring her with. Obviously. Yeah. I. I can't believe it's already been, uh, like three years since he died. Like, he died at the age of 57. Oh, yeah. Um. Of an accidental overdose. That was insane. That was insane. I mean, I, we have to kind of count our blessings here because we had so many, uh, you know, artists passed away in a very short period of time. Yeah. And all clustered together, you know, um, was Prince and a whole lot of other people. So, um, yeah. 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 Guy, man. It's Never good. great to have left us too early. Yeah, there's going to be some secret guests um, and uh, meet and greet with members of Prince's family. And donations from the three-day festival will go towards the painting of a mural of Prince leaning against a little red Corvette. So <laughs> um, so that's pretty exciting news. So, good that's sweet. Yeah, that's definitely appropriate. Yes. So, uh, so that is our news for uh, today and the, the program as well. Thanks again to the Yardbirds for uh, taking time and being on the podcast. A, um, a really fun band there. And uh, Jens, do you want to know what's coming up next time on uh, Concert Pipeline? I would love to. All right. Paula. Yes. Uh, I'm going to be chatting with Torque from uh, the band Stars. Uh, also, he was in a Broken Social Scene. And uh, so that's going to be coming next week on Concert Pipeline. That's what we got cooking for you. Um, and that's a podcast. Anything you want to wrap with before we leave, Jens? No, man, I am good. I would say the only thing that uh, I really want to leave people with is if you do have a dentist appointment coming up, uh, bring your headphones. Um, you know, the pain wasn't as bad because I was able to distract myself with uh, an amazing audiobook. It was totally just boom. I was so engrossed in it. And drugs. Take like some, you know, painkillers. Some heroin, uh, some heroin, heroin meth. Whatever you got whatever. lying around uh -huh, yeah. the counter, under the counter, legal, illegal. Right. Take it, you know, at least an hour before you have the procedure done and it's all about pain management before, you know, and after the procedure. That's great, great advice. I, you know, I never thought about, 
Uh, I never thought about having headphones in during a dentist appointment. Like you always have, I always have my mouth open really wide and I, I hear like I have to talk to the dentist at the same time, you know, and tell them about what's going on in my life, you know, and everything like that. And it's, you know, I, I know my, my dental hygienist is like, uh, she always wants to know what's going on. And what's the deal? Like you can't talk with your mouth open. I know. It's kind of hard anyway. to talk. It's kind of hard to talk close, too. But, but, uh, yeah. Um. I, think, I think in dental school, they have to learn that language. You know, it's like a second language. You have to go yes. and they teach you how to understand, um, how to communicate, yeah. you know, with people that have their mouths open all the way. So that, That's easily half the training, I do that right? for like 10 so. minutes and then I check out. It's like, is it okay if I listen to my audio book? And then, boom, boom. Yeah, that's easily half the training, I'm sure. So, uh, is uh, learning how to be. communicate there. So, all right. Yeah, and the rest of the training is about sticking the big needle in your gun, and then the rest of it is about like yanking out shit. Oh, yeah. Oh, so much fun. Uh, thank you for all the hardworking <laughs> dentists out there who do this job so I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. All right, man. All right. Well, let's wind it out with one more song from the Yardbird set at Ace of Spades. And this is a song called You're a Better Man Than I. For all of us here at Concert Pipeline, that's Jen Schippel. And that is Steve Jones. We will catch you next time. Yeah. Yeah.